everybody. Welcome to today's edition of the One Million by One Million podcast. I'm here today with George Spencer of Cyan Capital. George, welcome to the show. Thank you. Well, let's get acquainted. Tell us about yourself and about the firm. Uh, so I've been in the venture business in Chicago since 1990, uh, since I got out of business school. Um, I uh, worked first with for a firm called Boston Capital Ventures, which was mm-hmm. opening a Chicago office. I then helped start a firm called JKMB Capital, where we had a terrific run uh, from 96 to 2000. I left there and joined uh, what was in Brinson Partners and helped lead the spin-out of Adam Street Partners in 2000. I stayed there through 2006. Uh, I went on my, out on my own after that, um, investing my own capital, and I raised a small fund in uh, 2016. Uh, I invest in, uh, in uh, information technology companies at what I call a venture growth stage, uh, which is typically uh, once a company has gotten a little bit of customer momentum and obviously built their initial product, uh, we've closed uh, on three deals in the fund to date, uh, typically investing uh, over time about $2 million uh, in a deal. So, so let me double-click down uh, on a few of the things that you said. You already started in the direction of uh, helping us understand the specifics of the fund. So. When you say information technology investments, tell us a bit about what you like to invest in, B2B, B2C. Yeah, I I would say primarily B2B. Um, If something ends up as a B2C investment, it was a mistake or something that happened over time, which has happened in the past. Um, You know, I'm typically looking for a, uh, a a recurring revenue software company. And recurring revenue is a big part of our story. Or mm-hmm. a managed service business that's based on some level of proprietary software. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. And um, what is the size of your fund? Uh, the, the fund is fifteen million dollars. Fifteen million. It's, okay. It's just me. You know, I do all the work, um, and we're going to make seven investments, or at least that's the goal. Okay. And um, geography, you said you're based in Chicago. Is Chicago the only place you invest in, or are you broader than that? What's the geography? No, I, I, try, I, I basically I, I try to focus in and around the Midwest. Uh, having said that, I just made an investment at the end of last year in Los Angeles, um, but mm-hmm. really in making a conscious attempt to stay out of Silicon Valley you know, and yeah, the Boston sure. area, frankly. And there's, now, a lot going um, on. there's a lot going on in Chicago these days. So in, in the fund, I've got my, my first investment was in Chicago. My second investment is in St. Louis. And my third investment is in L.A. I see. And um, elaborate a bit on stage. You said you won the product built and a few customers already in place. What is a few customers? How many customers? What kind of – and since you're in the recur- recurring revenue business, are yeah, you looking I mean, I, for paying customers? Yeah, paying customers. I would say the first deal I did was a company called DataCubes, which I believe had three customers when we invested in the in 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 the company. Um, you know, I just invested in a company called uh, called uh, Twine Data in Los Angeles that has you know quite a few customers. Uh, that was a Series B. The other the other two uh, Twine Data, excuse me, uh, PowerPost. And data cubes were considered a Series A investments. 
And so what kind of monthly recurring revenue run rate do you like to see in place before you come in? I would say as low as thirty or forty thousand dollars. Thirty or forty thousand a month, okay. But and I, do you I, have don't a really, I don't really use that as I don't that's a little bit of a proxy, but it's more it's more about being able to understand why the what why the customers are buying it and understand right. that what you're doing is pretty hard to do. Okay. And um do you have any preference between Within B2B SaaS, do you have a preference between selling to enterprises versus selling to small businesses? No, you know, I've, I've invested in the past in, um, in both and made money on both. Uh, I think okay. the, key, the key is really understand. One of the keys in, in my diligence is understanding kind of how you're going to be able to build a distribution channel based on the, the price points that you're able to sell your software for. You know, and I've I've had deals in the past, everything from, you know, SPS Commerce, which was selling, you know, through an outbound telemarketing sales force that took us a while to figure out, you know, at a hundred or two hundred dollars a month per customer, uh, and um, all the way to Border Free, which was, you know, taking in in some cases five or six million dollars a year from some customers. So that we can work, I can work with both of them. Okay, so. Um Across the companies that you have invested in, both from this fund as well as your general experience, can you share a few examples and give us a flavor of why, when you went into the deal, what did you see, and what is it that made you decide to invest in this particular set of companies? Sure. Just give us some case studies so we understand how you think about investments. Yeah, I mean, I, I almost try to do a mini um, – BCG or McKinsey kind of analysis, you know, on every deal I end up investing in. Uh, so I'm trying to understand, you know, how hard is the product to build that you've got. I'm trying, and, and how difficult would it be to copy? Because generally, I'm, what I'm looking at is, you know, early stage and, and somebody who's a leader in the uh, in the in the vertical or the horizontal that they're in. Um, the second thing I'm trying to figure out is how important of a product. Is this to a, to a, to a potential customer, um, and you know, and that has to do with, you know, what's the economic re- return, you know, how important is it strategically to a customer, and then we kind of roll from there, and and I would tell you in 80% of the cases uh, since 2001 when I really started, you know, working on this strategy, you know, almost every company has had to make you know, a major mid-course correction, you know, in its evolution. Because um, yeah, I don't think you get it all right the first time, and, and the industry's changed. Probably the biggest example of that is a company called Border Free that started life um, as a company called E4X, which had just relocated from uh, Tel Aviv to New York when I invested in it. And they were the the solution was essentially a, a foreign exchange solution, which allowed uh, you to shop on an international website and buy goods in your own currency. And we got that business to about you know five hundred six hundred thousand dollars a month in MRR, and just stalled out. And every year we were losing our biggest customer or a customer, and we were basically able to sort of refill the tank, but not a lot better. And we ultimately shifted that business into a company called Border Free, 
which became an international e-commerce platform with that core currency conversion technology, which, which was really the key economic engine in the, uh, in the uh, product that we were selling. And we went from nothing to, I think, close to $700, $700 million you know, of, um, of recurring retail revenue, which equated to about 70 or $80 million of software revenue. Uh, the mm -hmm. company went public and uh, was, was ultimately sold to uh, Pitney Bowes. So, yeah. So I, I think mean, that, your point is very well taken. You, in the early stages, not everything is figured out, and uh, and there is a certain amount of pivoting that goes on often in terms of in in the quest for that sweet spot, that repeatable sweet spot that scales. Yep, that's right. And capital markets change, and competitive markets change, and you've just got to be able to adapt. So um, with that understanding, though, I want to ask you a slightly different question, which is, you know, we are in the beginning of 2019. Lots of stuff have already been built, and it's not like there are so many wide-open opportunities out there to build these massive unicorns. There are some. Obviously, there are some, and there are categories where people are pursuing that kind of opportunities, but there are also many, many niche opportunities, and some of these businesses need to be built for small amounts of capital, one to two million, and sold for 10 to 15 million dollars. Do you have appetite for this type of investment? Yeah, probably not that, um, but, but, you know, I'm, I'm very comfortable, you know, with something that I can sell for 150 or 200 million dollars. And what, uh, yeah. uh, what do you peg the capitalization for those kinds of investments? If you're trying to sell something for $150, $200 million, what is the amount of capital? What is the ideal about amount of capital in your well, opinion? Yeah, so I think that's a good question. I, I would tell you, I think there are, in the last three years from my seat, there, maybe in the last 10 years, excuse me, there, there are three really key elements of the capital markets that have changed that I think changed the, the, um, the dynamics that we're operating in today. And obviously it's a, it's a little bit of world of shifting sands, but the first is it's way cheaper to get a product to market today than it used to be. And what took, you know, five or $10 million, 10 or 15 years ago, takes a million to a million and a half dollars now to get a product to market and to get the first couple of customers. So that, that's the first thing. The second thing that's happened is that commercial banks have entered the market, I think, pretty darn aggressively and are willing to lend to uh, companies once they get to, call it $400,000, $500,000 a month of recurring revenue. Yeah. Um, and the third thing is that the private equity market, you know, has gotten incredibly frothy, in my opinion, um, and, and, you know, once you get to about a million dollars a month of MRR, um, there are lots of guys who are willing to invest in your company, buy your company, you know, do whatever, um, do, you know, you can kind of go, to, go, go kind of create your own deal depending on what people want to do and how well the company is doing or whatnot. Um, so, I mean, you know, I think, and it, you, can, you can look at any sort of a multiple, but at a million dollars a month of revenue, you know, depending on what vertical or horizontal you're at, you're in. I mean, I think your business is probably worth somewhere between thirty-six million dollars and seventy million dollars, and maybe and maybe more depending on on kind of what you're doing. 
Um, and uh, so, I, you know, I look at it and I'm like, for to get the company to a million dollars of revenue, you know, it probably doesn't take a lot more than seven or eight million dollars of equity. Uh, and that's from yeah. the startup through the through the Series A, um, and maybe a little bit of Series B, because uh, you can you can then use the the bank debt to get you to where you need to, to get you to that million bucks a month threshold. Yeah. So I mean that's you know that, that that's kind very of very good. I no, I, I think you you provided an excellent excellent uh, answer to that question. You know, my take is so if you can build a company to reasonable scale, and let's assume your metric of a million dollars MRR as a, as a reasonable scale point for five to ten million dollars in investment, you're in a very good place with lots of options. That's, that's exactly right. And, that's, and, and that's, that is and one of the options that, that we have to keep in mind is that the vast majority of strategic acquisitions, I'm not talking about private equity acquisitions, I'm talking about strategic acquisitions, happen in the 50 to 60 million dollar kind of range, price point. In fact, I would say sub-50 million valuation level. And for everybody concerned to make money with a $50 million exit, you kind of have to build a company for in that 5 to $10 million maximum you know, I, capitalization. I think, I think that's right. I mean, that's, you know, the goal here is not to sell the company for 50 or $60 million bucks. But if that's what ends up happening, you end up making three or four times your money, you know, so right. be it. Um, right. exactly. from, from, from my perspective, but but just getting yourself to the position where you're able to do that is important. And I think that you need to be very capital efficient and conscious of that as you think about building a company. And I, you know, to be honest with you, I don't think that happens all that much out in the valley, just because of the dynamics of hiring. The dynamic is very VC intensive and unicorn intensive. You're absolutely right. It doesn't happen as much as out of the Valley, but it's happening a lot in the startup universe, the world that we inhabit because we do a global business. Um, yeah. There's a tremendous amount of bootstrapping. We support bootstrapping very, very actively, which is where my question actually comes from. So now if you flip the argument a little bit and say that, okay, if you, instead of 5 to $10 million, if you can build your company for, let's say, 3 to $5 million, then you can make serious amounts of money even at a $50 million exit. Yeah, no, I think you can make good money. I mean, I, the, the problem becomes, I think once, once you get to sort of the, the business up to 4 or $5 million, you don't have to take a revenue through so-called 400000 a month of MRR. You don't have to take that much dilution to get the company to a million bucks of MRR because of the way the bank debt works. Right, exactly. The bank debt is, in SaaS is very effective if you have the proof points. Yep, I agree. Yeah, great. Excellent. This is an excellent conversation. So I take it, based on this conversation, you're not obsessed about this unicorn mania phenomenon. Uh, that, that would be an accurate statement. <laughs> so um, if you look at your deal flow in the last year, let's say 2018 deal flow, what trends have... Um, captured your attention or what trends do you identify? Yeah, so I mean, look, I think you've got an incredible amount of innovation, you know, that's going on in the economy right now. And if, you know, you, you ask me, I think we're probably in the third or fourth inning, you know, of the transition from an analog to a digital economy. And I mean, yeah. it's everything, it's everything from blockchain to drones to Internet of Things to 
you know, everything else. And at some level, it all comes down to, you know, data that's being kind of created and put out in the world, you know, in, in my opinion, and then, what, and then what you can do to integrate and create value out of that data. Yeah. And, and, th- and that's one of the big trends I'm investing on. Uh, the second trend I've been working on um, is really what I think is the turning upside down of the, um, call it, you know, advertising, market research, uh, you know, print media industry, which has all been really driven from the, the, the notion that, you know, print media ain't what it used to be, and newspapers are going away, and magazines are going away, you know, and you've got all these new digital um, media that are emerging and, and trying to capture uh, business models, you know, trying to capture sort of the customer with the same sort of advertising type models that the print media did. And I think there's a lot of dislocation going on. You can see, you know, what it's abundantly clear if you look at, you know, companies like um, LiveRamp, Qualtrics, SurveyMonkey, yeah. just to name a few, uh, that are that are you know kind of in the new economy of um, of market research community uh, you know consumer advertising etc. And then you look at you know the Nielsen's of the world, the the old Axiom business of the world, you know the Ipsos of the world who are just really clawing to um, to kind of keep uh, keep even at this point in time. And I you know that's it's probably you know just it's an example of another industry that's you know, probably going the way of retail. Yeah. Yep, absolutely. So um, what would you like to, in, in a, as parting comments, what would you like to convey to our um, audience, which includes a huge number of bootstrapping entrepreneurs who are constantly being advised to build their companies in a capital-efficient way? Yeah, so I would tell you that in general, you know, venture capitalists, and I consider myself a venture capitalist, venture capital is not for every company. And I think you need to look at your company um, in a way that helps you build your company and make money. I mean, I, I look at, when I invest in a company, I look at the entrepreneur, you know, as my customer. Now, does that always mean that I'm going to agree with the entrepreneur? No. Does it, does it always mean that the entrepreneur that I invest in, you know, I think is going to be the CEO, um, you know, five years later? No. But, I, you know, I, I want to help him build his business or her build her business. Uh, and, you know, collectively, we're all going to make money. And that's um, – and I think there's, there's, there's a lot of ways to skin the cat out there. There's a lot more angel money out there than there ever used to be, you know. And, and I just – I think that – the real, the real thing you ought to be doing is getting your, unless you have an opportunity to be a, you know, billion-dollar outcome kind of company, is getting your business, and, is, and if what you're doing is reasonably proprietary, getting your business to a point in time where you can either manage the burn rate with your existing investors or, you're better yet, you're break-even and making money. Yeah, and, you know, absolutely. You don't, have to, absolutely. You, don't have to do, you don't have to do crazy things. Um, We have a simple way to crystallize what you said, which is entrepreneurship equals customers, revenues, and profits. Financing is optional, and exit is optional. Yep. On that note, thank you very much uh, for sharing your thoughts, um, George, and thank you, listeners, for coming today. 
We will continue to bring you these investor perspectives as well as entrepreneur perspectives on this podcast series. And by all means, drop by at one of the mentoring sessions that happen every week. So in 2019, every week, pretty much, with a few exceptions, you will have the free public roundtables available. Go to the website, 1mby1m.com, and register for a slot to discuss your business and your strategy. And I look forward to working with you there. Thank you. Bye.